I think keeping that mindset that, you know, you have more time than you think for the things you want to do, but that time is ultimately limited. You have 168 hours a week. You have 8,760 hours in a year. So what do you want to do with them? So I don't know about you, but I've had a lot of conversations where people tell me that they would love to be writers, um, not just write on the side, not just do something occasionally, but actually live the life of a writer, earn their living that way. Today's guest, Laura Vanderkam, has done just that. She is a writer full-time, uh, contributing regularly to a whole bunch of different magazines and uh, a multi-time author. Her latest book, actually, uh, I Know How She Does It, is uh, forthcoming in just a little bit this year. And, and we're going to dive into both the writer's life, what it's like to actually construct a career or a vocation around writing when that's the thing that you love to do most. And then um, we're going to dive into into the book and, and specifically actually some of the research, really cool eye-opening and myth-busting research that she's done around the illusion of how we think we spend our time during the day and how we really spend our time during the day. We talk about priorities in a really different way. We talk about sleep, um, and she actually says that most of us are getting a lot more sleep than we think we're getting. And um, and we dive into that because she did her own research to actually make these claims. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. Fun to be hanging out with you here. Um, since uh, I, I think, you know, like, I think it was actually the article that you actually wrote about making workplaces more like a camp environment that um, got you onto my radar. And then I started exploring what else you were up to and uh, realized that, that I guess we probably share some pretty similar views mm-hmm. on how to work and how not to work and how to contribute to the world. Um, but I'm curious about your background because I actually don't know a whole lot about your personal journey. So, um, 
Give me like the thumbnail, and then the it, thumbnail. we may dive in and do some deep dives along the way. Yeah, well, I'm a journalist uh, first, and have enjoyed writing about interesting people uh, for much of my life. And one of the things I find fascinating is how people spend their time because we all have the same number of hours and yet people manage to do very different things with them and experience them in very different ways. So a lot of what I've written about has turned into time management and productivity topics uh, over the past few years on a Personal note, I uh, live outside Philadelphia. I have uh, three kids and enjoy hanging out with them as well. So the whole time management thing is not just a, a work fascination. And with, with three kids and being having a professional career and a life, it's personal for you. It's always <laughs> personal. But I think that's what all of us wind up writing about is what is personal to us. Uh, but, you know, it, you can be in any demographic and want to use your time better. Uh, certainly when we have full lives, when we have kids, spouses, jobs, we become more aware of these things. But there's so many good ways to think about our time and strategies that we can use that I, I like to look at people at all demographics too. Hmm. So when you, when you started writing, you said you were focusing more on writing about individuals, writing about people. Yes. I, I love stories about people. I love to see uh, what people's journeys have been and, and how they get to where they are. So where did that fascination start? Was there, do you remember a time where you're like, this is cool and I could potentially actually make this my thing, <laughs> make this my thing. I, you know, I've always loved writing. I think that uh, my love of writing about stories about people came from, I used to write stories in my bedroom at night when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. I would uh, just write little short stories and illustrate them. And that's what I've always done. It's always what I've been happy doing. And I love to write fiction, but then you look around at the world and realize there's so many great stories that actually happened mm -hmm. uh, that I love to write about that too. Yeah, I saw the the truth is stranger than fiction phenomenon. So do you have a do you have a fiction book in you? Do you think? Oh, definitely. <laughs> I know. I I, I always have. I mean, I, similar to you, I write nonfiction, but there are so many ideas that kind of pass into my head, and you're like, hmm, this can make for a really interesting story. But as a writer, I mean, it's a very different process. It is, and the funny part about it, I've, I mean, I've read a lot of people's novels. I've been in writing groups over the years, and one of the things people always tell you and you're like, oh, I don't think that seems realistic in this novel. And they're like, but it really happened. And the truth is that truth is no excuse in fiction. Like it doesn't <laughs> matter that it actually happened. Uh, it has to be believable on its own. And that's an entirely different set of rules. Uh, but with that, with nonfiction, I mean, you can get away with things because it really happened. I mean, if you're being honest about your reporting and all that, that you could never do in fiction. Mm, that's kind of an interesting lens. Um, so you start when, what was your first writing gig? So I spent a year after college working at USA Today, and I had an internship on the editorial page. Mm -hmm. And I was there, you know, writing headlines, fact-checking columns, uh, emptying people's outboxes, I guess. And, uh, <laughs> it's like the typical starting the job. The typical starting <laughs> job. Writing, uh, right. But I, 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 like, I like to write. And so I decided to try writing some columns, and my editors were kind enough to start running them. And so uh, I wrote about issues pertaining to young people and to college mm. uh, for my time there and uh, kept writing for them afterwards and have you know, expand it to other places since then. Yeah. What, what is it? I mean, it's interesting when, um, um, it's interesting. Probably my primary outlet is writing. Um, although I, we're you know, sort of exploring a lot of different things, 
But, but would you consider yourself a writer's writer? And by that, I mean, like, I, I have friends where all they want to do is write. This is like, they feel like they were born to write. This is their form of expression. If you took it away, they couldn't easily swap something else in. It's like, they don't want to do anything but that. Or do you consider yourself sort of more of a, this is one way that I contribute and that I, yeah. I do love writing. And I definitely think that that is how I express myself best. It is how I organize my thoughts, uh, certainly more so than speaking, <laughs> doing interviews, things like that, uh, which is interesting because, again, the writing about nonfiction, writing nonfiction, um, you're trying to put out an idea. And so you need to be interested in those ideas and want to spread those ideas in whatever way you can do that. And there are many ways other than writing to do that. And so people sometimes ask me about other mediums or, you know, other ways that I would be spreading these ideas or if I'm first tied to the idea and then the writing comes after that. And it's like, yeah. actually, that's not really how it worked. I have been a writer first and foremost. I found a subject that interested me that I wanted to keep writing about. And that's more or less how my career has worked. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Also, you mentioned, are you attached to the topic more or to the process of writing? And which is it? Because for me, my process has been, I kind of latch on to something for uh, a couple of years it's sort of like the gladwell style approach it's like you take a topic you go massively deep then you you put something out and then, then you kind of move on to something else um i, th I think it's uh and, and but then there are people who write and they write about one thing for their entire lives I think that would be hard to do. <laughs> I think I, I would for, get right, for me, I'm a, a little <laughs> bored. And one of the reasons I love blogging, I, I've been writing almost daily on my blog for yeah, many years. <laughs> and it's just because it's a place I can put anything. I mean, yeah. I can't I can't sell my random thoughts on, you know, the LeBron James going back to Cleveland idea. It, nobody wants to hear what I have to say about that for a paid publication, but I can put it on my own blog. And so it's an outlet for expression. Right. But it's also at the same time, I mean, one of the things that's happening in the world of writing is there's a lot of different disenfranchisement. There's a lot of sh mass shift in the way the business is happening. And at least from, from what I'm hearing, a lot of people who came up through sort of like old school editorial journalism are in a lot of pain. But when you take somebody who's got that training and then say, okay, I'm also going to, now I'm going to put out my own property. I'm going to build my own audience. It seems like that would give you a lot of power to be able to really determine, um, where are you going to write for whom? I mean, even if you, so you put out a book, let's say, and you have a number of books and you're working on your next one. When it comes time for that to come to market, now you don't have to rely on other publications. You know, you start, even if you're building your own, you know, community on your own blog and it's just random musings. Now, when something more substantial comes out, you can say to those guys, Hey, I've got something to come out rather than hoping that somebody else is going to pick up the story to a certain extent. Yeah. I've learned definitely with, uh, the whole process of getting books out there and getting them to readers that it is often about your own audience and your own social media followers, the people who uh, have read previous books and have kept in touch with you and want to read future books. Uh, and, and so you don't know that with the first one, you sort of have right, this yeah. assumption of, of how the book world works. And I've had wonderful experiences with, with my publisher and with, um, the media attention they've been able to, to get from my books. Um, but I do know that a lot of it is about somebody wants to hear from you. 
and they need to have that relationship with you now. And so I'm hopefully building that up more with, with blogging. And uh, when I write for other places, hopefully people will come back and find me right. uh, and, and stay connected that way. So, so how do you feel about that, though? I mean, is it a necessary evil or is it something that, you know, the, the actual socialize and, and interacting and engaging side of things? It's a lot easier now, uh, just because there are so many ways to interact with people uh, that that are workable for those of us who are a bit more on the introverted side. I can connect with people via Twitter that I would probably right. not walk up to and talk to. <laughs> and, which is so many writers. Which by is the way, so also, many writers. Yeah. It is so much better to to have that as an option. I, I like it. I started blogging uh, years ago just because, again, people told me, well, it's something you should do. Mm. That you should have your home online that people can come find you. And then I found, I love this. Like, I really <laughs> love this. And it's somewhat self-indulgent, of course, uh, but I feel like it's also helped my writing, too, um, that posting 500-word essays daily has made me much quicker at writing mm. 500 word essays. <laughs> and so if you call me up and say, I need an essay on this in two hours, I can do it. <laughs> and because I do it in 30 minutes right, for my own blog. Practice, so it's yeah. my practice. So it's, it's my practice and I get better at it hopefully. And I see how I do things on the blog that I should make better in the books. And I see what people react to. Yeah. So were you, were you, um, somebody who ever did like morning pages? I have not done that so much. I kept a journal for years, um, and I would usually write at night. Since I've really started blogging regularly, I've kind of stopped that. I, I've reached the point where I'm not sure how many more words I have in me. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so between the daily blog, I've been, I'm writing um, right now three times a week for Fast Company. I write uh, columns for other places. I'm coming out with a book roughly every 18 months. Like I, I don't have a whole lot more words. Yeah, I mean that is, ma <laughs> I mean that is a massive. And I'm, I'm happy to write for other places. Like I love, I love having new places to reach readers. Um, but I wind up not writing a whole lot for just myself anymore. Mm. So does that bother you? Or are you cool with that? I think that. It's it's a trade-off, and, and my community of readers at my blog are so supportive that I can write about whatever random things my kids do, and they'll right. indulge me on it. Um, I'm a little wary of the whole putting kids' photos up online where anyone yeah, can see. I haven't I'm quite so figured out with that, how yeah. to be authentic in sharing their stories while also protecting their privacy, and that's something I'm still working through. But so unlike my journal where I could tell all of that. <laughs> but I, you know, I think it's a trade-off that I'm happy with right now. And, and hopefully, um, my kids will be if they go back and read the archives later. So you just shared your, your blogging regularly about 500 word posts. You're putting out a book about every 18 months. You're committed to writing three times a week for Fast Company. And I'm guessing there are other gigs that just kind of drop from the sky on a regular but random basis. Uh, regular is, but random. I, I A couple <laughs> other places I love to write for, too, yes. Yeah, right. And that is a ma I mean, anybody would look at it and say, that is a massive amount of content to create. It is a lot of content, and perhaps some people would read it and say she should probably write less. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not suggesting I, that. At I, all. I think the volume. There's different ways of trying to get better at things, and I I throw my hat in with the volume strategy. Yeah. So. But also, you said something really fascinating, which is a lot of people would look at that and say, "Okay, that's insane. There's no way that somebody could, could keep up quality." 
content at that level of production. But what you said before, I think is really fascinating. And I don't want to skip over it, which is that when you write at that rate, um, it, you build this muscle that allows you to just create on a, on a higher level faster. So you don't actually, it, it's not that what you're doing is diluted by the frequency and the volume of what you're creating. It's that you actually build the muscle of being able to create really high level quality content because you're doing it so often. I hope that's the case. I certainly hope that's where I'm going with all this. Uh, I do believe that the more you do something, the better you get at it. And I've been working on a essay about public speaking, which is not something that has come easy hmm. to me. And yet I do enough of it now that I really love it. And I think I'm getting better at it. And hopefully the audience members who are sitting out there listening to me uh, agree with that. But it's, I've realized, you know, no one's a natural at it. You have to do a lot of it. And the more you put yourself out there, the better you get at it as you see what audiences react to, uh, see what works, see what doesn't, uh, hone your material from there. It's the exact same thing with writing or any other thing. I mean, playing a musical instrument or running. I mean, you have to do a certain volume of training, a certain amount right. of it before you get better. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. 
Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. That sounds familiar. You should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. So you just threw something out there that nobody's a natural at it. Do you really believe that? I think there are people who have more inclination toward things. There are people who have some talents uh, in the way of, of certain things that they would do, certain performing talents. I think that slight differences at the beginning can get magnified over the time because when you are naturally slightly better at something, you tend to enjoy it. Right. And then, and then you because you enjoy yeah. it, you work harder. And as you work harder – you get better and better. And so these things feed on each other over time. Yeah. It was, it's so fascinating because it, it, it kind of starts to segue into this uh, exploration of excellence and greatness. And I don't know if, did you see recently there was, um, you know, there's the, you know, the classic, uh, 10,000 hour role. And, um, there was a recent study that came out that did a meta analysis of every, all of the original research and all this following research. And what they showed was that, um, the, uh, the deliberate practice was was not nearly the factor in many different domains of high level expertise that the original research showed it was. In fact, professionally, it was as little as three percent of what led to the top, top, top people. I think it was music and athletics is where it was was sort of like the highest expression of you know they could really relate um, you know correlate it strongly to top level performance, like seventy percent correlation or something like that. But in professional life, um, sort of day-to-day working, like being the best at your job, whether you're an accountant or investment banker or whatever it may be, there was it contributed way less than a lot of people thought, um, which, uh, which is interesting because I've always – I think we want to latch on to so much the notion that you being able to get really, really, really good something, it's not about what you're born with. Like anybody can do it, so it's a matter of work. So we, we so desperately want to believe in, in the deliberate practicing. And I'm, I'm not saying I don't, but – I think, um, be, I, I wonder if we, well, I guess the research, at least the latest study that I saw really kind of shows that, um, what you come into this world or external factors, you know, environmental factors really contribute a huge amount also. Well, of course. I mean, I think that these things are not either or, yeah. um, I think that what we were talking about, that you have a natural inclination towards something that you're a little bit better at it. You get better and better at it yeah. as you get the positive feedback. Um, and of course, as what you say, we like to latch onto a concept that right, is, it makes us feel good. It makes you feel good. <laughs> and that you could also sell books on. I mean, this right, is exactly. a part of, we're all looking for the big idea that's accessible to everyone and yeah. can have a quirky name that we'll all remember. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, so with everything that you're doing, um, and you're, you know, like you've got this incredible career, you're also your mom, you've got three kids. 
then how you spend your time becomes something which is pretty important to you. Um, so, and something that you've written fairly extensively about and done some really interesting sort of experiments around. So tell me when you really start to focus on this, um, sort of personally, when you start to say to yourself, okay, if I'm going to be able to do all of this simultaneously and really feel like I'm performing at it, you know, feeling good about it, um, I've got to look at the way that I'm investing my time. And then I think like most people, it occurred, uh, after I had my first kid, I mean, because that really is a moment in life where you mm. realize that your time has some pretty big, uh, you have some big time commitments. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's yeah. how we describe children. They are big time commitments. And also that you have to th be mindful about how you're spending your time, especially if you want to do something and you need childcare in order to do it. You have to think through it ahead of time and make arrangements for it to happen. And, and a lot of people, when they don't have that, uh, they can be a little bit more free flowing with their time. And I think that that transition is very hard for people to be accountable for their time. But the good news is that once I started to look into it, um, I was certainly, you know, influenced by all the moaning about how there's no time for anything that mm. goes on a lot in popular culture. But I think right, that that's so, uh, missing. How are you busy? <laughs> how are you busy? Yes. That's how we answer. And it's, it's a good way of saying, I really don't want to talk about this anymore. <laughs> so, uh, you know, busy, I've said busy. Somebody asked me how I'm doing. I'll say busy because you know, what are you supposed to say? I'm doing great. Life is, right. yeah, that's not what people really want to hear. They want to have that sort of, we're all in this together uh, mindset. But what I found is that when we take a more holistic view of our time, we often have more time than we think we do. And it's human nature to focus on the stressful moments because negative incidents, incidences stand out more than positive ones. Mm. Um, that's certainly true if you look at studies into loss aversion or right. anything like that, that you, know, you remember the bad stuff. And we also have this formula of how we tell stories that three points of evidence leads to a conclusion. Hmm. So I could tell you like, I had this happen today and this happened to this and this and life is crazy. Life is unsustainable. But you can free yourself from that narrative too. You can say, well, there are these stressful moments and then there are these not so stressful moments. And I am interested in how we can have those juxtaposed together that somebody who on a time log can... Um, have moments that look kind of crazy, like she's been traveling for two or three days and comes home late and has to go kiss her kids goodnight while they're sleeping and go back to work. You know, you can look at that and say, that's crazy. That's not good. But then if you look at the whole week, you see that she's reading chapters and chapters and books to her kids on the other days. And she's going skiing with them on the weekend. And she's, uh, had time booked in with friends in the morning that she goes running with them. I mean, there's these other things that can happen in a week too. And so if you focus only on the stressful moments, you get a different picture than if you look at all of it. So, I mean, it sounds like it's not only focusing only on the stressful moments, but also focusing on almost maybe like too short a window to get a real picture of what's happening. I think a week is the cycle of life as we actually live it. Huh. And one of my books is called 168 hours, which right. is in fact 24 seven. Uh, no one ever multiplies that through, but <laughs> it is 168 hours if you want to check me on that. Uh, and the reason to look at our life this way is that 
you know, what's a typical day for you? Is it Tuesday? Is it Saturday? I could look at you on those two days. I mean, they both have the exact same number of hours and they both occur just as often. But if I look at you, you have a very different life. I'd get a very different picture of your life on those two days. And it also shows us how much time we really have. Um, because, you know, a lot of times people say, well, I can't do anything else. I'm working full time. Okay, well, let's look at that. If you're working 40 hours a week, if you sleep eight hours a night, so that's 56 hours a week, that leaves 72 hours for other things. That kind of sounds like a lot of time to me. I mean, if you're working 50 hours, that's 62 hours. You know, if you're working 60 hours, that leaves 52 hours for other things. Again, mm. these are not small bits of time. You can have a life if you want to, but you have to be conscious about using that time well. So, yeah, I mean, when you break into the macro, it's, it's like the macronutrients, right? <laughs> the macro units like that, and you look at the bigger block, you know, um, then the question, I guess, becomes, okay, so, all right, I buy that. And even if I say I'm working 70 hours a week and I you know, sleep longer, you're still, no matter what, I guess you're still going to end up with over a week, a, enough of a chunk so that, that you can, can fit a lot of it. other stuff. Yeah, in I mean, there. The, the CDC tells us to exercise 2.5 hours a week. I mean, I think right. we can find the time. Yeah, which is, I'm, I'm always amazed also. There's, it's funny, I haven't been able to find this since then, but um, back when, when I was in the fitness business, there was um, the URSA, which is like the International Health and Racket Sports Association, put out all of these um, marketing materials for health clubs to use as marketing materials. And in one of them, they cited this study that NASA did um, a couple of decades, like two decades ago or something like that, where they measured the, the productivity of their employees who exercised regularly versus ones who didn't exercise regularly. And what they found was the first seven hours of the day, it was pretty much the same, but the eighth hour of the day, the exercisers stayed about the same. The non-exercisers dropped 50%. Oh, that's funny. And we don't like, and, and most people work nine hour, 10 hour, 11, 12 an hour. You know, so can you imagine what the fall off is after that at this point? Uh, exercise is definitely one of those things that uh, when you do it, you see payoffs in the rest of your life and how you're spending your time too. So it doesn't take a whole lot of time. But big payoff. Yeah. And I guess also the latest stuff is showing that it's not the long, slow exercise that actually really affects the brain the most. It's the, the shorter, more intense um, type of stuff. I guess Gretchen Reynolds raised to a certain extent. I don't know. I'm, I'm a runner, so I kind of like right. long, slow, steady state uh, cardio myself. Uh, but mostly because it's my me time. Like, yeah. I don't really care yeah. if it would be better, more fat burning to do the high intensity right. interval training. It's not, uh, I wouldn't get out by myself in the nice, fresh air for long enough doing that. So I prefer to uh, take yeah. my 45 minute run. Do you feel like though it's because it, how often do you exercise pretty regularly? Most days. So do you feel like that makes its own time in your life? I think it does. I often this morning I ran bright and early. I was good about getting up and running in the morning. I often do my run in the middle of the afternoon because I know that's the time when my energy levels would be slumping. Mm. And since I work for myself, I can do that right. without people complaining about me missing 2.30 <laughs> p.m. <laughs> meetings or coming back smelly from them. Uh, so I know that that's time that if I didn't run, I would just be surfing the web and be unable to focus. Mm. So by going for a run, I recapture that time for something that's actually productive. Yeah. So, okay. So, so you have total control over your schedule. So we're going to have a lot of people listening to this who don't. Um. Yes. Well, we can go there. We can go, let's there. go there. All right. Let's go there. Um, I do. I have a lot of control over my schedule, which I love. I assumed other people did not. You know, I was assuming that whatever strategies I use in my life are perhaps peculiar to me are things that I can pull off that, that others could not. But 
recently I have been having lots of women who have professional jobs also have kids um, keep track of their time for me, keeping track of a full 168 hours one week. Um, and I've been looking at these logs and seeing what conclusions I can draw. And the truth is that people in very conventional jobs wind up using many of the same strategies in order mm. to make the pieces of their life fit together. And so one of them, for instance, is what I call splitting ships. Uh, you know, I, when I first came up with this in my own life, I thought I was brilliant and unique and all that. But you quit work at sort of a reasonable hour in the afternoon or early evening, hang out with your family for a few hours. And then after the kids go to bed, you get back online, go back to work, right? So I've done this most days, I would right. assume working days of my life at this point. Uh, but it turned out that in the sample of women I looked at, 45% uh, were doing the exact same thing. Huh. So it there are offices where people put in long hours, but many parents and others who care about having their evenings free have figured out ways to leave at a reasonable time right. and then log the hours later. So then, I mean, the obvious question there is, and, and I, I have no idea if you had further, sort of further conversations around this, but when you see that pattern, you're like, okay, cool. So now um, you can spend that time with, you know, like the, the family before the kids go to sleep, stuff like that. Then the kids go to sleep and you're back at work. Then how does that impact your relationship with an intimate partner? Well, the good news is very few people do that seven nights a week. <laughs> so, you know, people ask that question, like, but then if you do that every night, when do you see your partner? Um, you know, Friday and Saturday nights are good for the, seeing your partner, for mm -hmm. instance. Uh, I've also seen that many people take at least one night of, off from doing it. Um, but even if you, say, have two hours after you put the kids to bed that you have available to you before bedtime. Mm -hmm. um, people might, for instance, work for an hour and then chill for an hour mm -hmm. or work for an hour and a half and then hang out for half an hour with their right. intimate partner. I mean, again, these, these things are not either or. Yeah. And, and I guess that, yeah, that's really the reality. I mean, how much, even if you had that time, you know, or for people who don't do the second shift, like the, you know, that, that would it be 55% or 65%? 45%. Or, or, yes. Right. No, I'm thinking the opposite. Oh, part. the opposite. Yeah. Yes. The, the, the right. 55 who don't. No, I mean, and, and in many cases, they don't do it because they're working longer evenings. I mean, so right. they've so they still, still the have same their, issue. Yeah, it's just they lump they're... it in one versus sort of splitting yeah. it in two, which is also the same pattern that exists with entrepreneurs. I mean, it's the exact same thing. It's, you know, entrepreneurship, especially when you're in startup mode the first couple of years, I mean, it's, it's long hours and you kind of hopefully make a deliberate trade off that, you know, you're monitoring that and seeing how it's affecting you. And that. But classically, I would bet if you did a really similar survey, to entrepreneurs, especially in the first three years, that it would be double that rate of people who are doing the split shift. Yeah. And and looking at it, it's the same thing with uh, working on weekends. I mean, I could tell you like, oh, it sounds terrible to work on weekends. But what I would see people do is limit their hours during the week hmm. and then make up some of that on weekends when, for instance, a partner who has more of a conventional job could hang out with their children, right? right? So they're getting solo time with each parent and the parent who's in the more entrepreneurial role had more flexibility during the week and then they'd trade that off on weekends so mm. that was another strategy i mean you could say working at night is bad you can say working on the weekends is bad but on the other hand this is also how people advance their careers while also seeing their families yeah 
Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Which brings up the idea also of, of um, quality time versus quantity time. What, do you, what, are your, what are your feelings around this? So, I, again, I don't think these things are, are either or. Uh, it's the same when we talked about the volume strategy with writing. I mean, part of what allows for quality moments is that you're just spending a big quantity of time with the people you care about. And mm. while you're in those big quantities of time, stuff happens that's really cool. You get the cool moments. The good news is that looking at people's time logs, even people who do work demanding hours, tend to see a reasonable amount of their kids. And that's just because, again, there's 168 hours in a week. And so, you know, people see their kids in the morning. They see them in the morning before they go to school and before they go to work. And people don't think about using that time, that that's time that's available to you. But again, if you've got little kids, you know, they often wake up at the crack of dawn. Right, yeah. Like you're not going to work at the crack of dawn. And so you've got this time. And often it's a big chunk of time. It's just that everyone's so focused on getting out the door that you don't see, don't stop and use it. Yeah. Um so I'll, I'll bring something out of left field, but um, maybe it's not out of left field. It's not for me. I have, um, 
I have a mindfulness practice, um, meditation practice. And I, I guess I surround myself with a number of people who do similar, like, you know, like parents, really busy lives. And, um, and I know for me, it's been, I actually didn't start it for this purpose, but it, one of the benefits of the practice has been, um, a real shift in my ability to just kind of at any moment become more aware of my, where my attention is, um, and then adjust it. So like during those little moments, like you kind of like where you would just almost reactively steamroll through them and then say, okay, you know, like we're rushing out the door here. It's kind of like, well, do we have 30 seconds for me to just sit with my kid and, you know, like talk just briefly even and kind of inject that more in. But I think one of the challenges for people who consider themselves super busy is that, um, is a lack of, of just core awareness of how they're spending their time at the moment that they're spending it. I think you're on to something there. I mean, whether it's a mindfulness practice or whatever yeah, it is, whatever just the, pausing, the pausing to is, notice right. um, what is happening and that if a, a small child has climbed in bed with you to snuggle, like you can sit there and snuggle for a minute. It's mm. okay. Like whatever else you're doing probably can absorb that extra minute um, and you can just pause and really enjoy this. And that was actually one of the things I've seen on time logs that I find most heartening is people's ability to use small bits of time when they want to. Hmm. Um, I looked at a time log recently of a woman who had a really wretched commute in the morning. Uh, and How long she, was it? Yeah, well, it was long, but not just long. She was bringing two kids to daycare that was a long way away on a, oh, a you know, bad highway. But, you know, they had to be in the car at 710. But she'd always get the kids ready by seven and they would play for that 10 minutes, seven to seven, 10. Like, and I love that she was using that. And there were other changes she was going to make in life. Like she, when I talked to her six months later, she'd moved basically mm -hmm. to, to get rid of that commute, uh, which was a brilliant solution. But even when she had this very stressful existence, she was seizing that 10 minutes in the morning so that when they got in the car, they were not unhappy. They had just all played together. And, mm. and I thought that was a wonderful way to be mindful of that time. Yeah. So it's, and I, I think that is really, that's uh, to a certain extent, I think the missing conversation around the idea of, of optimizing the way you spend your time. It's like, you can't optimize it if you're not actually fairly aware of how you're actually spending it while you're spending it. How you're spending it and how you want to spend it, yeah, too. Exactly. I mean, that's the other right. question is that people assume they are so busy that they don't have time for any of these things that they might want to do. And mm. so they don't sit there and ask, what are these things I that's want really to do? That's really interesting. Right. So you're, you're like, why bother thinking about that when it just isn't even an yeah, option? Yeah. I mean, you know, people want to know how to save 30 minutes a day. And so, well, what are you saving that time for? What mm. on earth do you want to do with that time that you're not doing now? And if you sit there and think about it chances are you'll find some way to fit it into the life you're living. Hmm. And if that 30 minutes, if the want is for something you really want, you're probably even then more motivated to make sure that happens. Well, and when you know what it is, and, yeah. and then you start looking at where the time is going and where, where it can fit in. And the funny thing about time is that it's highly elastic. I mean, it will expand to fill, I mean, expand to take in the things that you, you want yeah. to do with it. Yeah. Um, I know it's like the Pareto's law thing. A test will take exactly as long or as short as the as time you allocate. Well, and certain things it. expand to fill all available space. <laughs> right. I mean, email will expand to fill all available space. Housework will expand to fill. So yeah, you have to choose absolutely. to give it less time. Talk to me. Um, were there any other interesting things or surprises or patterns that you saw coming out of when you start to look at all the different uh, journals? Uh, the good news is that people sleep more than we tend to think we do. Really? <laughs> yeah. All right. Tell me. <laughs> so, uh, 
the funny thing about sleep surveys, you know, people call you up and ask, well, how many hours do you sleep a night? Well, what night? Okay. Well, a typical weeknight. Well, what's a typical weeknight? Like one of the things I saw in these logs is there was no typical weeknight. Hmm. Some people sleep the same amount every night, but a lot of people don't uh, for varying reasons. But because of that, when for the same reason that we tend to view negative instances as sticking out in the mind more than positive ones. We tend to remember our worst nights as typical. Oh, that's interesting. And so then we don't see that other nights happen too. And that a bad night, it's not that a bad night didn't happen. It's just that it's no more emblematic of your life than any other night. And the good thing about keeping a week-long time diary is you can start to see this. You'd say, oh, well, you know, Wednesday night was awful. And I'm not kidding. Wednesday was the worst night for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then uh, other other days were better. But I looked at um, this study is 1,001 days um, of from time diaries. And I only found 37 days that featured fewer than six hours of sleep. Really? That's it. Huh. So, yeah, that's not what I thought. I mean, based on all the popular, uh, quote, wisdom that's no, out there right it's, now. Uh, it, the average woman in the study was sleeping 54 hours a week which is basically the equivalent of eight hours, five nights a week, and seven hours, two nights a week. Huh. Was the pattern that um, during the week was generally shorter and the weekends was sort of like... So the weekends, weekends they were making up for some of it. Um, Although, again, all the averages for during the week were longer than seven hours. I mean, it's... We... Sleep is a biological necessity. And there are people who have medical issues or chronic insomniacs who this doesn't apply to. But for many of us, our bodies will find a way to make it up. Right. Okay, so let me ask you another question, though. Um, I have no idea if you tracked this, too. Were people sleeping naturally? Or because there's also, I mean, the the percentage of the population that, that now takes sleep aids is, is ginormous. I'm sure it's <laughs> ginormous. Um, you know, I have no way of knowing that. Right, I, I didn't, I didn't look at people's probably. medicine yeah, yeah, chests right. while, while I was writing this. I think that there's some evidence of some people have, you know, disordered sleeping. That's all there is to it. I mean, if you get a short night one night, then you fall asleep in your kid's room while you're putting them to bed the next night. And that was certainly happening on some of the logs. But again, it's because sleep is a biological necessity. It's not a testament to how important you are. And this is the thing that we have this image in our mind of like, I'm so important, I'm so busy that I don't sleep. Well, we all sleep, you know? (laughs) And so uh, I think looking at it and taking an honest look at it and where, uh, how we might build our lives so that sleep happens a bit more regularly is is good. But the good thing to know is that it generally does happen. Hmm. Now, you've inspired me to actually track this a little bit more uh, diligently. It, well, it's, it's fun. I actually use an app um, that with a sensor that goes under the mattress. That was a Kickstarter project. Oh, awesome. Um, but, uh, so I have, I actually have um, fairly detailed sleep logs of my phases of sleep and stuff like that. Um, and I was, I was, it's funny because it shows that I probably get very often better sleep than I thought. Good. And I'm not, and I'm not somebody who champions, you know, like lack of sleep anyway. I'm like, no, I, you know, I want to be sleeping as much as possible. Um, interesting. So any, any other big ahas or surprises from those journals? 
Uh, people work less than one might think, too. Um, so, so we sleep more and we, we, and we sleep more work and less. We work less. So but just like a lot of bravado or something I, Again, it's, I mean, it's just human nature. I mean, we overestimate the things that we don't want to do and we underestimate the things that we do want to mm. do. So it's easy to uh, view our longest work days as typical, just as we view our shortest nights as typical. And, you know, we live in a competitive world, too. Um, so, again, there are people who are overworked. I'm not saying there aren't. Um, however, if we keep an honest track of our work hours, sometimes we get a different picture. We look at the whole thing. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. It's the, the difference between, uh, what really happens and what you, uh, think happens. And then, uh, the observational data when you actually start to track it. Um, I'm, I mean, the curiosity too with me is, um, cause you see this with nutrition journals with people is that the, the simple fact that they're journaling changes their behavior. It does. Um, and I am certain that there was some element of that yeah. in any study that I'm going to do. I mean, I know when I track my time, I'm better about doing things right. that I should do. It's <laughs> the act of observing changes the thing being observed. I know if I'm sharing this log um, or even just looking at it myself that I have a certain impression of my life I, I want to have. Uh, so I wouldn't discount that. However, you know, it gets a little tiring to keep that mindset the whole time. I mean, we live our lives the way we are going to live them. So um, I found that things were often more in control than sort of the picture we often have of modern life. Hmm. So the glasses are actually rosier than, uh, or the, glasses, the reality is the, rosier the reality than the glasses. The reality is rosier yeah. than the glasses. Interesting. Okay. Um, big thing that we throw out there. Um, you can have it all. Yes, no, maybe. Totally different approach. Sure. I mean, why not? I, I find it funny that um, we like to click on the phrase, can't have it all. Um, and I've tried to explore why that might be. And perhaps some of it is, is knowing that even if you look at who's writing these articles, they're often extremely successful women that by those of us who are mere mortals look at them and we're like, that looks like having it all to me. <laughs> I mean, you know, you've got a great job, you've got a loving family, and then, I don't know, something happened, but you still have those things too. And I, I think that depends on how you define it. Um, to me, I would say that having it all is having a job you enjoy and having um, a thriving family as well, whatever form that takes. And sure, why not? Why couldn't you have those two? So there uh and I think on that level, probably a lot of people would agree. So let me, let me raise the stakes. Um, I was sitting down with, uh, I had a conversation with Joanne Wilson, um, last year, who's a well-known venture capitalist, invests largely in women entrepreneurs, very often with a tech focus. And she's been around the world of tech entrepreneurship for decades now in a lot of different ways and been exposed to companies of all sizes from smaller sizes, you know, to the, the classic hockey stick giant explosion, you know, tech companies. Um, and we had a similar conversation and, 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 um, and her answer was you could have it all, but not at the same time. But I think what we were talking about there was, um, and I guess it's the difference between the definition of having it all. You know, some people look at, uh, Sheryl Sandberg or you know, like the people at the, who are on top of these massive, massive, massive companies with, you know, huge, huge, huge careers. And in my mind, that, you know, or in their mind, that's having it all. And then somebody else looks at somebody who's earning really comfortable living, um, taking good care of their health and their family and, and, 
um, and enjoying what they do and saying that's having it all. And, and I think what Joanne was saying, you can't be that person who's you know, at the top of something elitely huge and have it all simultaneously. She's never seen an example of it. Actually, personally, I've never seen an example of somebody who hasn't blown up a major part of the life to get there. But I guess that's also not the definition that most people mean by having it yeah, all. Yeah, I mean, I think that... I don't think many people actually aspire to that. I, I'm not sure how many aspire to that. And yeah. I think if you look at, I mean, many women who have been very successful in whatever fields, I mean, they have families. Like I, Cheryl Sandberg appears to have a family she enjoys. <laughs> so, I mean, in that sense, sure. Like you could say she has it all. I mean, she gives she gives interviews where she says no one can have it all, but that doesn't mean that whatever this all is by any standard of all, I think she has a lot of it. So Yeah, but... Tell me if this is mythology too, then, because um, I've had a lot of conversations with women and men about who work a lot, especially on the entrepreneurial side, and um, around whether there's a sense of guilt at, you know, like, well, I'm pouring all of my energy into this particular thing. I feel like I'm not being a good mom or dad. Um, but then if I put all of my energy into being a good mom or dad, I know this thing is not going to flourish in the way that, it, you know, I believe it could flourish. Do you think that's reality or perception? I think a lot of that is a negative perception. Hmm. And again, there, are, if you look at how many hours people do in fact work, like not that they talk about working, but when they actually track their hours, there often is time for other things. It's also a choice of how you spend, you know, how you choose to use that other time. And I do believe that humans have space for more than one passion at once that I think you can be passionate about building your career and also passionate about building your family. And claiming those two are at odds is a very limiting mindset. Mm. Limiting yet pervasive. Limiting yet huh. pervasive, and unfortunately more pervasive for women. Hmm. What do you think that is? I think it's just historical expectations. Um, you know, I talk sometimes to women who are their family's primary breadwinners and yet somehow feel guilty about earning the cash that's keeping their family from being homeless. It's like, hmm. well, you know, kids need time and money, and you're giving them both. Hmm. So takeaways. Um, if we're looking at this whole conversation and, um, a couple of big things in, in my mind we've explored, you know, like one is the note is the truth of the way that people spend their days and their nights and their nights <laughs> versus the reality when you actually sit there and start to journal it, even if we allow for some level of, you know, like the observation changing the fact, um, probably doesn't account for the entire I don't mis, think it counts for the entire misper misperception, probably by a, a wide margin, um, so, so when you accept that as really the the foundation, then there becomes a really strong motivation to say, okay, let me do as much as I can humanly do to really figure out how to optimize the time that I do have. I do think time is precious. I mean, it is the ultimate limited resource. And so we have to be careful about how we choose to spend it. And that doesn't mean that you have to plan every 15 minutes. I mean, life would be insane if you tried to plan every 15 minutes. Uh, so I don't advocate that at all. But asking what you'd like to do with your time, and also recognizing that we are more in control of our time than we might think that time is more of a choice than we often assume that whatever we are doing during our 168 hours is 
at least partly a result of choices we are making or have made in the past. And given that we've made those choices, we can choose differently if we so desire. And there may be consequences. I mean, of course, there's going to be consequences, but we're smart people. It's a rich country. We can probably do a lot <laughs> to change uh, anything we don't like. So I think keeping that mindset that, you know, you have more time than you think for the things you want to do, but that time is ultimately limited. You have 168 hours a week. You have 8,760 hours in a year. So what do you want to do with them? Yeah. And just the notion, I think that for me, the key thing that you just shared is time is a choice. Um, that's big because I don't think most people feel that way. <laughs> no. Well, one of the busiest people I ever interviewed uh, told me that she never says, I don't have time to do X, Y, or Z. She says, I don't do X, Y, or Z because it's not a priority. Hmm. And if you think about it, that is probably more accurate language. You know, yeah, I can absolutely totally agree. tell you I don't have time to dust my house, but somebody offered to pay me $100,000 to right. dust my house, I'd get to it. You know, it's, like, it's not a matter of lacking time. Uh, it's, it's that I don't want to do it. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, what are you working on now? So I'm finishing up edits on a book that's coming out of this Time Diary project that yeah. I did. Um, so that'll be out in May or June. And I'm continuing to blog and to write about time and productivity and interesting stories. Yeah, very cool. So name of this project is the uh, Good Life Project. So if I offer that out to you to live a good life, what does it mean to you? Uh, it means to spend my time in a way that I'm happy with, that I've chosen, uh, and that helps nurture my career, my relationships, and myself. Awesome. Love it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Laura. It was so eye-opening for me. Um, fascinating to see the difference between how we actually spend our time um, when it's truly logged and reported versus how we think we spend our time and how so much really comes down to choice uh just the this simple idea that that um time is a choice and we're not nearly as forced into the way we're spending it as we think we are is, is really got me thinking about how i'm spending my days so i hope it has you thinking a little bit too and also you know kind of a neat exploration into the writer's life and what it's like to build a career around that as always so excited to have you guys join us if this show resonated if you like what we're doing here i so appreciate it if you head on over to itunes and just share your thoughts. Um, an honest review would be fantastic. And if um, Camp GLP, if our annual gathering, we literally take over a summer camp, a kid's sleepaway camp for three and a half days at the end of August and um, have this awesome blend of workshops and fun and celebrations. Uh, we call it summer camp for makers, entrepreneurs and world shakers. If that sounds like it could be really cool to you, then head on over to goodlifeproject.com slash camp. And you can check out all the details. I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project. Mm -hmm.